You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. This week, we continue in the Gospel of Mark, in Simply Jesus, with I think one of my favorite passages, one of the most profound, clarifying passages of Jesus' ministry. It's at the end of all of these things, right before he's going to enter um, Jerusalem and on Palm Sunday and that tumultuous week, which I think we've covered already in the sense that you might not realize this about the Gospel of Mark, but all the Gospels. They are not biographies. They don't cover everything kind of consecutively and um, even-handedly. They emphasize certain things. One week of Jesus' life is one-third of the gospel. Uh, The week from Palm Sunday through Easter is one-third of the entire gospel of Mark. Um, That kind of tells you where Mark thought the emphasis should be, right? That that week changes all of history. Well, this is kind of the passage and next week about blind Bartimaeus, this blind man and the healing of that right before Jericho. Um, and all, this is the passage that defines what's going to happen during that week. Okay. So today, we're, and why is this passage so important that Jesus contrasts who he is, what he is, and what disciples are to be with the way the world uses power and position and politics. And I think it's because of this. Um, I don't know if you realize this. I've realized it more and more with um, people here in our culture, but most people in our society who are rejecting Christianity, per se, are not rejecting it because of Jesus. They're rejecting it because of Christianity and Christians. And it's not that we are dutifully displaying how wonderful Jesus is and just promoting Jesus. The problem they see is that they see a lot of people using religion as a means to justify their power plays and their politics and their positions in society. And so they criticize religion as just a self-justifying sham, a game to game the system, to get the rubber stamp of approval. Basically, you choose what you want to believe, and then you say, that's what God said. And therefore, you justify your positions, your ideas, your politics, your morality. And then you decide to push it on everyone else in society. They see this kind of as a contradiction at the heart of Christianity. I would agree with them. Sadly, a lot of Christianity has just turned into a kind of a power game these days. And, um, well, even at the time of Jesus, his disciples wanted to play that power game. And we see that with James and John in our text today. And the rest of the disciples wanted to do it too. They all wanted to be the godot. That's the term I'm using. I don't know if you could put that up. Are you there? Yes. Okay, Godot, which is greatest disciple of all time. You know, you've heard the goat before. Now, I want to be the greatest disciple, and we'll see that as we read Mark chapter 10, okay? And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. 
And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do what, for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> Would you have that audacity? <laughs> Kids do that all the time, don't they? Yeah. Um, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? At least he's smart enough to ask. Okay, so what is it? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So from this passage, we're going to look at these three points. Our human quests for greatness, whatever form they take, greatness as he redefines it in this text, and finally, greatness as realized in his life. But first, human quest for greatness. Now, few people will say, I'm the goat, although we're getting more of that again and again. I'm the greatest of all time, or I want to be the greatest of all time. We don't usually even say, you know, I don't want to really be the greatest of all time. I just want to be successful. Or I want to make a difference in our society. Or I want to make significant changes. Um, but do you realize greatness is kind of the overall cover term for all of those quests for, in a sense, fame or promotions or perks or awards or celebrity status? We want the corner office. We want to be a winner. We want some form of greatness. I find this in my. I find this among pastors. I don't know if you've. Uh, you think we're all so? No, we are so not immune to this. You know, I recall years ago um, when I was part of what was called the Pastoral Leadership Institute. It was when I was much younger, whippersnappers all around, you know. There were about 60 of us in the first initial group in 1999, and. Uh, we, you get 60 pastors in a room, and everybody, every pastor was looking at each other going, like, my church is bigger than your church. <laughs> I want to be greatest. I want to be number one. I want to be number two. Um, in this text, James and John, the, do you know they were called the sons of thunders el elsewhere? Yeah. Well, that tells you how they want to use power. Okay? They were into, oh, I know how to use this stuff, power, and I'm going to do this and do that. Let's just send down some lightning bolts on these Samaritans. That's what happened in that text. Because they don't want to follow you, Jesus. Wow. 
Yeah, coercion, <laughs> big time, right? But anyways, they come and they ask the question, right? Give us what we want. And what did they want? Mark 10, 37 says, grant us to sit, they ask, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That's how they defined greatness. Notice greatness is a position, a position of power and authority. They wanted to sit there and tell other people what to do. It's filled with some type of prestige. Um, it reminds me, I'm teaching a leadership class again this fall at FGCU, and often people think leadership is all about a position that you're in. And it's the position where you say from your high and mighty throne of some type, you tell other people what to do. You make decisions, and other people have to jump through the hoops. That is so not Jesus' definition of leadership at all. You won't find that anywhere. So before we jump all over James and John, though, this is the way they were in a culture, an honor and shame culture in the Greco-Roman world. The seeking of honor due their name was extremely important. John Dixon writes this, ancient Greeks and Romans thought nothing of praising themselves in public or better still, getting others to praise them. No one appreciated crass boasting or boasting that put others down, hubris or arrogance, nor was self-love advisable, as Greek, the Greek myth of Narcissus reminds us. But taking hold of honor due to your merit was perfectly acceptable. It was taken for granted that those with merit would seek the honor due to them. This is philotimia. Philo, philos, for love, and timia, for honor. It's basically, I love honor. The biggest thing you could ask for in the Greco-Roman world was to have honor, status, a position, renown, glory. From Alexander the Great through every one of the Caesars, they all looked for it, and everybody in society was always looked, and it was all about, quote, respect, right? Well, the disciples were in the same boat. James and John Somehow, and I guess if you looked at the 12 disciples, they might have thought, well, of course we should be number one and number two. I should be number one and you should be number two. <laughs> but of course, because they were, of the all 12 disciples, James, John, and Peter were the three that were the closest to Jesus. Sometimes he set them apart. He took them with him away from the rest. So. Of course we should have that honor. We probably have the best advice to give to Jesus. He needs us. He considers us his greatest council members. Now, you realize this, though. This is nothing. I, I was shocked in, in my studying for this text, this... Uh, for this Sunday, I came across um, someone who did a lot more than just praise himself for a little. Caesar Augustus, um, <laughs> he wrote an epigraph, um, a long epigraph that we can't read the whole thing of today. 
and uh, about his life and how much honor was due him and how much glory was due him. And he actually had it then inscribed on two giant bronze columns and erected in Rome for all posterity to read. Here's just a little part of it, just to give you a little feel for it. At the age of 19, on my own responsibility and at my own expense, I raised an army with which I successfully championed the liberty of the republic when it was oppressed by the tyranny of a faction, drove into exile the murderers of my father, avenging their crime through tribunals established by law. I undertook many civil and foreign wars by land and sea throughout the world. And as victor, I spared the lives of all citizens who asked for mercy. I celebrated two ovations and three carules triumphs, and I was 21 times saluted as imperator. I was triumvir for the organization of the Republic for 10 consecutive years. My name was inserted in the hymn of the Sali by a decree of the Senate, and it was enacted by law that my person should be inviolable forever, and that I should hold the tribun tribunician power for the duration of my life. Woo! Sounds like quite the resume, huh? Have you ever, yeah, have you ever read resumes that almost sound like this? In our society, we're really based a lot on Greek and Rome understanding of things and this idea of put it all down, lay it all out. But today, it's not just one individual like Caesar. Everyone's Caesar Augustus. Everyone's their own brand. Everyone sells themselves, promotes themselves, markets themselves, and every organization does the same thing. And honestly, not just pastors, but churches do it. Organ look at how great we are. And if you're part of our greatness, look at how great you are. You need to join us to be great. That's kind of the underlying theme that runs through a lot of things these days. As if we all know what greatness is as if we even understand the term greatness. And we assume, of course, you know, if I'm put in the position of power, if I'm number one or number two, if I've given the status, when I make decisions, it's going to work out really well. In fact, I know how to run things. Right. Now, the rest of the disciples looked at James and John, and it says they were um, indignant, basically ticked off, angry at them. And what they're really angry about is, why didn't we think of asking for that? <laughs> so what is greatness? That's the big question. And Jesus redefines it in our second point. What's amazing to me in this text is that of all the people that should be indignant, Jesus should have been indignant at these two. Who do you think you are that I need advice from you? That you would be my counsel? Who do you think you are? But he doesn't get indignant with them. And this, of course, is right after. How could they say any of this stuff? Because before this, did you notice in our text when we read it, what was Jesus talking about? He, that he was going to go into Jerusalem. He was going to be handed over to the high priests. And he was going to be mocked and spit upon and finally crucified by the Gentiles and killed. And then James and John, hey, hey, could you give us what we want? <laughs> That's the thing. When we are so focused on our, ourselves and our own greatness, we are not listening to anyone else or anything going on. We have no clue 
Listening is not a great skill of people who think they're great. But Jesus then doesn't get indignant with his disciples. He gets clear. He gets crystal clear what his kingdom's about and who he is and what he's about. Mark 10, 42 to 45, he says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not so among you. It's the way the world works. Not here. Not in my kingdom. My kingdom doesn't work by those rules. Those rules actually don't work either, by the way. That kind of greatness, if you've ever, um, <laughs> anytime that you have to compare yourself to others to find your own greatness, anytime you have to coerce and push people around, anytime that you have to rise, um, you know, step on people to get up the pyramid, anytime you have to be in that position, guess what happens? It's so unstable. You're always having to look behind your back to see who's going to do it to you. It doesn't really even work. How the mighty fall time and again. But Jesus says, greatness in the kingdom is to be the servant. To be first means to be, he says, slave of all. And that term slave here, doulos, is rather amazing. It's not a term for dignity, but absolute abject humiliation in the Greco-Roman world. Carl Rengsdorf uh, did a word study on this word doulos, and this is what part of what he says in that study. He says, the distinctive feature of the self-awareness of the Greek is the thought of freedom. The Greek finds his personal dignity in the fact that he is free. Hence, the Greek can only reject and scorn the type of service which in inner or outer structure bears even the slightest resemblance to that of the slave. Nobody wanted to be a slave. Now, 80% of people in Rome were slaves in some form or another, but nobody wanted to be in that position. It was in not just um, rough work, but it was undignified, humiliating, because you were told what to do, when to do it, and how. And yet Jesus says, you want to be great, you're going to take that willingly, the position of a slave. Now, We have to realize this, though. The Greek world, the world of the Roman world, (laughs) the world in the Old and New Testament, when they talk about slavery, it's not the same as the slavery, the, um, the slavery of involuntary chattel slavery that was based on race that we found here in the United States and in Europe. Not at all. That was not known in that time in that world. And to try to justify, well, the word slavery comes up in the Bible. Well, so does the word adultery come up in the Bible. Do you understand? You cannot justify. Um, There are all sorts of injustices in the Bible and stories that involve those injustices does not condone those injustices. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's right to do. 
Does that make sense? So Jesus uses the model of slavery here to say that a person would take it willingly, not that it was forced upon them. It's a whole different understanding of it. That someone would choose to be bound to others in such a way to do what is needed for the sake of someone else and not for the sake of self and would not look to try to find any honor or privilege or position for self, but only what is good for the other. If you want to measure your success, Jesus says, see how successful you are at being a servant. If you want to look at how significant you are, look at how you contribute to the lives of others, how you empower and lift them up and give dignity and honor and serve them, whoever they happen to be. The greatness of position is always bottom up in the kingdom of God, not top down. And Jesus is not here to lecture his disciples. I don't know if you noticed that. He applies this whole lesson to himself, and he becomes himself what greatness is. He is greatness realized in this text. John Dickinson continues in an article. He says, Jesus seems to have delighted in turning upside down ancient notions of greatness and servitude. Here Jesus is good as says that true greatness consists in self-sacrifice, his impending martyrdom being the prime example. And it wasn't the fact that he's just saying, look at me and how I'm modeling this. No, in fact, greatness in the kingdom of God wasn't, um, didn't come out. Humility didn't become a thing. Service didn't become a thing because they heard Jesus teach this. It became a thing because they saw Jesus live this and be placed in a position of crucifixion. Jesus says plainly here, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I put the Greek up there too for this sentence because there are two words in this Greek that make it extremely important to exactly know what Jesus was doing and why he was doing it. The first is the second last word. It's the word anti before the word polon for many, anti, which is in place of, instead of, um, in other words, Jesus became the substitute. He took your place in what he was doing through his crucifixion. And the other word is the word lutron that occurs in this text. Lutron antipolone at the end. That word is ransom. It's the price that is paid to free someone. So he said, my whole life, everything I'm doing is for you to free you and I'm pouring out my life and dying the most ignoble death possible in your place. That's greatness. That is what greatness is all about. You see, the crucifixion, there were three different types of death, um, uh, three different capital punishment options that the Romans had. One was decapitation. The second was burning you alive. But they considered crucifixion the most inhumane, humiliating, 
position to be in because it lasted so long. You were stripped naked. You were mocked. You were rejected and spit upon. I'm not sure which one I'd want, <laughs> right? None would be a good answer. But Jesus faces the most horrendous. This was not a type of death that it, wearing a cross was not a thing to be done <laughs> in the first couple of centuries because it was seen to be the worst possible thing you could ever want anyone to ever go through. And some people might go like, why would God, the Father, if he loves his son, why would he put him through that? Couldn't God, if he's all-powerful, couldn't he come up with a different plan, like some like holy um, you know, laser or something to come and eliminate all evil in the world or some other option? Why would he do something so cruel and unusual in punishing his son like this? Jesus kind of answers that question because it's not about power and that God had power. It's about love. He says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend. We kind of all know this, that any real love for someone is sacrificial. It's going to involve sacrifice at some point in time. Now, when you maybe have a baby, you think, oh, how wonderful it is. But boy, do you sacrifice. Not just through the pregnancy, right? Although that can be, oh, right now you probably have got, you know, um, your bladder's the size of a walnut, right? It happens, right? I'm sorry, that's kind of gross, but, you know, I remember my wife going through it, and I'm glad I didn't, right? But it's also just the sacrifice of raising a child. The child never realizes, really, until they have children of their own, maybe, how much you have sacrificed for your children, right? Sleepless nights, constant little, little irritations and battles. I, they're beautiful. They're wonderful. But they can be irritated. You know this. But you know it costs a lot to raise a child, not just in dollars and cents, but time, energy, your own exhaustion. We already realize that substitutionary sacrifice in some form is always involved when you love someone. And if God loves this world, he's going to give the greatest gift of all, himself, not stuff, not just a little time, but all eternity. And he gives it in his son, Jesus Christ. And beyond that, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice. Because if God would try to take some holy laser beam or some lightning bolt from the sky to rid the world of all evil, who would be left? And Jesus in this text is saying, you try to solve problems. The world tries to solve problems by pushing people around, dictating, telling people what to do, making things happen. Doesn't solve anything. The problem of evil is not solved by power. The problem of evil in this world is solved by love. 
by the power of the cross. The moment when Jesus appears the most weak, vulnerable, helpless, incapable, limited, when he is not even given the dignity of a slave at the cross, that he is considered less than human, nailed down at that moment of his greatest weakness is his greatest power in changing the world and transforming lives. The greatest leader being the most despised slave criminal at that point, the greatest and the least, the first and the last, right at the cross. And that's the God this world needs to see. That's the God people need to understand. If they're going to reject Christianity, let them reject it because Jesus is that kind of a servant, that kind of a redeemer, ransomer. Not because I want to push people around or I'm acting egotistical and they think he's, that God is like me. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, only the suffering God can help. And I think it's the suffering God who is willing to do all things for your salvation that needs to be proclaimed again and again. And people, if you haven't seen today, people are suffering in our society. We have gone through the last few years of the pandemic and through all sorts of turmoil and chaos in society, economic, social, political, and a lot of us are hurting. The answer is going to be a God who suffers alongside and suffers for and changes and transforms that because of his love for you. Why is it that I am so caught up time and again? And I'll tell you, this week was one of those weeks I was having dreams and daydreams and things were like, whoa, man, why, why do I want such significance? Why do I want to have you know, people like, look at me and honor, you know, all of that stuff? Somehow, deep, deeply, we're questioning whether we are truly loved. Do you know when a child knows they are absolutely unconditionally loved? They don't worry about too much of that stuff. When any human being knows that God, the most infinite, most capable, most amazing, loves me, all of a sudden, those quests for glory, I don't need anymore. James and John wanted to manipulate Jesus to get some position of power. And Jesus talks about how Gentiles lorded over each other and pushed people around. But it's amazing what gets accomplished in this world by those who are servants, those who give of themselves, those who will sacrifice and offer and listen to and care about and don't care about the limelight, don't look for fame or fortune, but just look to make a difference by serving others in love. That's what makes this world a beautiful place, and what we want to be here at Thrive. Jesus' cross, that's what changes everything. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, we're just astonished, Lord, that you didn't get angry with your disciples for asking for something like this, that you didn't um, just tell them how to live that you lived it, that you served us without limit, that you took our place, that you were our substitute. 
Lord Jesus, that you are that ransom, that you paid the price ultimately, that you sacrificed all for us. May that melt our hearts, Lord, so that we can become better servants of others and not worry about our influence in this world, but just serve and know that you will give the influence as you see fit and your kingdom grows through that love enacted in our lives, that you will use us as your hands and feet. Lord, you know how caught up in our culture right now we all are about honor and seeking it and status and power and position and pushing people around. Forgive us for all those things, Lord, and help us in the church especially to remember your kingdom does not grow through coercion. It grows through this sacrifice, this message of good news you are to this world. We pray, Lord, for those with distorted uh, views of who you are, Lord Jesus, that maybe a little more clearly through our lives this week, people would see you. All this we lift up in your precious name.